0: This is Mark Steiner and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future. Right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Del Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today on Soundbites, we're listening to a town hall I moderated in Salisbury on the Eastern Shore. The impetus of this town meeting was a proposed poultry operation in Wicomico County that would include up to 13 chicken houses, each holding at least 30,000 chickens. This broiler operation would sit on top of a paleo channel, which is the public drinking water source for Salisbury. When this was first proposed, people felt left out of the county council discussions, and many were concerned about the health risks that are posed by these operations. What happened next was unique in the history of the Eastern Shore. Black, Latino, and white communities came together to convene their own town meeting So, their voices could be heard, so they could begin building their own political movement. The theme of the evening's panel was health, looking at the expansion of industrial scale poultry operations, confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs as they're called, and discussing the impact they have on community health and safety. We were joined by public health experts who shared their perspectives on how zoning policy could be changed to protect public health and address community questions related to the density and intensity. Of these industrial poultry CAFO expansions on the Lower Shore, it was sponsored by the Concerned Citizens Against Industrial CAFOs, the Wicomico branch of the NAACP, the Circle of Leaders, and other concerned citizens from throughout the Lower Eastern Shore. Our guests were Michelle Merkel, co-director of Food and Water Justice for Food and Water Watch, Frederick Tutman, who is Patuxent River keeper and farming representative for the Patuxent River Commission, and the only African American river keeper in the entire nation. Maria Payan, consultant for the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, Craig Watts, former contract poultry grower, and Dr. Jillian Fry, director of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for Livable Futures Health and Sustainable Aquaculture Project. Today, we listen to the first part of that panel, where our guests describe some of the health and environmental risks associated with industrial poultry production. Next week, we'll hear the rest of the panel, hear comments from the audience, and talk about proposed solutions. First, we hear from Dr. Julian Fry from the Center for a Livable Future, who discussed, among other things, a letter written from the Center for a Livable Future to members of the Wicomico County Council that summarized peer-reviewed scientific literature on human health concerns associated with the development of industrial-scale chicken production. You'll hear this letter referred to throughout the panel, and you can read it online at steinershow.org.
1: The health concerns related to uh, industrial food animal production Um, relate to what is coming out of the house, um, what is coming off of the land where the waste might be stored, and also what is um, running off where the uh, waste is applied to land. Um, And you all are very familiar with with poultry houses, but I just want to remind you about the industrial-sized fans that are on the end of every poultry house. And we need to remember that if those fans shut down the gases build up and other things build up in the house and the birds health suffers. Um, they probably can't survive for that long. I'm sure there's people in the audience who could tell me exactly how long they they could survive. And all of those gases, um, ammonia, volatile organic compounds, um, and also particulate matter, um, all of that is being pushed out into the environment where people are living. Um, Sometimes the, uh, the, the route of exposure from the house to the community um, is, not, is not very direct because there is a setback or the way that the house is situated. Um, there are things that can be done to reduce um, the risks from being exposed to the things that are coming out of the fans. And like Maria said, um, it also has to do with density of houses, size of houses, the number of houses at the operation. That all needs to be taken into account. And as the density goes up, the size goes up, and the concentration of operations goes up, so does the risk if people are living nearby. Um, when waste uh, leaches into groundwater, uh, the contaminants we're worried about there. Um, are nutrients, especially nitrates, um, because of the health concerns when nitrates are in your drinking water. Um, some of the health risks having to do with nitrates in your drinking water, um, they can be, uh, it's very damaging for, for babies, particularly if they um, drink water or have water in their bottle with formula um, that have high nitrate levels. Um, it can actually be fatal Um, and we're under the impression that that is a rare disorder, and I I sure hope it is, but there's no (coughs) monitoring on the Eastern shore or in other states where there is um, very dense animal production um, to know that for sure. I I really hope that that is the case, though. Um, But there are also health problems for adults who have nitrates in their drinking water. Um, It can cause birth defects Um, for a pregnant woman it can also cause liver damage and it has been linked to bladder cancer Um, so it is certainly not simply a health risk for infants and the way that that gets into the water um, is if there is runoff from the actual operation where the waste is being stored or the way that it is land applied if there's waste applied to fields and there's a rain event, or it's applied to fields um, at an inappropriate rate where there's more uh, waste there, for more nutrients there than the crops can take up, um, then there is very clear evidence that the nutrients run off and enter, uh, enter the groundwater system and surface waters. And let me just back up. I wanted to talk about the, I forgot to mention, the health impacts from being exposed to, Uh, the different gases coming out of the buildings and also particulate matter have to do with your respiratory system. Um, So it can be a trigger for um, asthma, um, bronchitis. You can also have allergic reactions. Um, So there's a host of health effects that have been linked to the things that are coming out of industrial poultry houses. And I want to make very clear... Um, there's been a lot of criticism uh, of the letters that we present, and it's very understandable. There, uh, there are people who, who don't want to talk about the health risks that are being posed. Um, but I want to make very clear that just because the science doesn't exist in terms of the disease burden doesn't mean that the risk doesn't exist. There seems to be um, an effort to communicate information that, um, well, we don't know the answer to that question, um, so it's not something that you should be concerned about. It it seems like that is the um, line of reasoning that is being put forward. Um, But I want you to be very aware that there is no monitoring systems on the eastern shore to see what, The disease burdens are. How many people are are becoming sick because of these exposures? We're there. There are no air monitoring uh, efforts that I'm aware of. There are no air quality standards that apply to industrial poultry houses, Um, and the water regulations are actually quite narrow. Um, It's been communicated that 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 it's a robust regulatory response, and I understand that there are very specific requirements for permits. Um, but the the application of the Clean Water Act to industrial poultry operations and agriculture in general, it, it's actually pretty narrow. Um, you have to break the law in a certain way, um, and there are not um, surprise inspections. Um, there is not active monitoring to determine Um, whether nutrient levels in the water is going up when there are new operations coming in. Um, The research research that we have shows very clearly that there are health risks present on the eastern shore. Um, There is research from uh, USGS. Um, There is research from different academics that show that on the eastern shore, the levels of nitrates in drinking water or not in drinking water, sorry, in monitoring wells and in waterways in general are very high and are a concern i've read multiple reports from the USGS that says we are monitoring the water quality, we find residues of pesticides, we find high nitrates that might affect the uh, make the water not suitable for human consumption. And it is maddening to see that there are no other steps further from that. USGS is not a public health agency. They are not a regulatory agency. They are a science agency for the Interior Department. So we have very good science, not just from USGS, but also from the multi-stakeholder effort to monitor and restore the Chesapeake Bay. Um, We have more research in this watershed uh, probably than any other watershed in the world, certainly um, compared to any other watershed in the country. But the connections are not being made um, when the research shows that the, that the nutrient levels are going up and it, ha- it is actually stated in their report that this is a concern for human health. Um, there are no more steps taken to make the connection and figure out how these operations should be cited how they should be regulated in addition to how they are currently regulated Um, well let me talk about uh, the specific drinking water situation here Um, so usually when i go to speak at panels like this um, i'm i'm trying to bring up and share information about the uh, implications of industrial food animal production For rural residents who are relying on private wells, because they are especially vulnerable, um, private wells are not regulated by any government agency. Um, In Maryland, my familiarity with the regulations show that the health department tests new wells just once, I'm under the impression, um, and, and then... You know, and then it is certified and, and can be used. So there is no active long-term monitoring of drinking water on the eastern shore um, in, in rural wells. Um, the USGS monitoring wells should tell us that there is a problem, um, but we really don't know. There's, there was also um, a pilot study done some, uh, a few years ago on the eastern shore, where um, they held a drinking water clinic and had rural residents come in and test their water and they also gave them a survey about their water. It, it was a very small study, but it, it showed that there were levels of pathogens in the water um, and also uh, nutrients in the water that are, of, that are of concern for human health. But the survey was also very informative people indicated that they do not regularly test their water um, and they would get their water quality tested if there was a glaring issue with their water. Um, and it's possible that the small study is not indicative of the situation on the whole eastern shore, but I am concerned that it is. Um, and now this is a very uh, a unique situation where there is a proposed operation a quite large operation that would be sited right over um, the Paleo Channel which is the drinking water source for um, the city of Salisbury. Um, Public Health 101 teaches us that first you separate human waste or animal waste from your food and your water. That's what you do to protect public health. It's not technical it doesn't have to be technical. Um, it, it's not complicated science. But if you don't want your water or your food to be contaminated um, with pathogens that may or may not be resistant to antibiotics due to what is being um, fed to the poultry, um, and if you don't want it to be contaminated with other things like nutrients, um, you keep that separated. So. I am very concerned, um, I've been reading up on the situation here, where the payload channel is located, the fact that um, the nature of the payload channel makes it very uh, vulnerable to contamination um, in terms of whatever is going on on the surface, um, whether it be a, a septic tank or, uh, or an industrial poultry operation, um, I'm very concerned about that. Um, So the protection that is in, in, um, in effect for public water, um, there is a level of protection there, so that is the good news. But um, the bad news is that there are cases in other parts of the country where public drinking water sources have been contaminated by industrial food animal production, also industrial crop production. Um, which there's, of course, a, a, a close link between the two. Um, and, for example in Iowa, the Des Moines Waterworks is operating a nitrate removal facility that costs $7,000 per day to produce 10 million gallons of water. And the reason why they need to operate that and remove the nitrate from the water is because of all of the industrial hog operations that are spreading their waste on the fields. They have nutrient management plans just like it's required in Maryland. but it, it turns out that um, it's not 100% protective of water quality so when the waste is being spread, it's draining into the source water for Des Moines and now there is a lawsuit where um, the uh, Des Moines Water Works is suing the surrounding counties for not properly controlling the runoff from the industrial hog waste. Um, so I'm also very concerned that that, that would happen here and um, the rates for that you would need to pay for clean water would grow up demat- dramatically if you needed to be removing the nitrates related to um, industrial poultry production impacting the paleo channel. Um, And I think that's what I wanted to cover for now. Thank okay, you. we
0: we'll come back. So let me now uh, turn to yeah. one of the issues of health um, that I think is being being debated and, and concerned with people in this county and, and across Delmarva. Uh, is, this, is the question of a public health ordinance, what that means, what that really covers, what would that entail, what's its reality? Uh, and we're going to turn to Michelle Merkel, uh, staff attorney with, um, attorney with Food and Water Watch.
2: Thanks, Mark. I'm very happy to be part of this conversation, so thanks for having me. Um, I am going to touch on the local ordinance, but I've also been um, asked to talk about whether the Clean Water Act permits that CAFOs have are, in fact, protective and robust, is, uh, um, it's a point that Jillian raised. As Jillian said, there are a number of USGS studies that show we have some of the most contaminated surface and groundwater in the nation. I think we are supposed to have someone from USGS here tonight. Judy, is that you? Raise your hand. Yay for future questions. Um, and one of the ways the state tries to minimize pollution is through clean water permits, which is a federal env- environmental law intended to protect our waterways that the states are um, authorized to implement and enforce. And the state issues clean water Act permits for municipal sources and for industrial sources and certain types of livestock operations are, including poultry operations are considered industrial sources for purposes of clean water act permitting uh, the state of Maryland first issued permits in 2009 for poultry <coughs> clean water act permits for poultry and their most recent permit was issued in December 1st 2014 so the permits are issued for every every five years they're up for renewal so you have an opportunity to comment on them um, they are supposed to be revised and made more stringent as you learn more about technology and ways that we can do better to prevent runoff of pollutants. So who is who needs a permit? So first you have to be an animal feeding operation. You hear that term AFO all the time. And to be an AFO, you have to confine animals for 45 days or more in an area where there's no vegetation grown or foraged. So these pig poultry complexes right, are confining chickens for more than 45 days. Um, inside the buildings, not growing anything else where the chickens are... Um, being raised, and so they're AFOs. But not every AFO needs a clean water permit, so you have to be of a certain size. So in Maryland, if you're a medium-sized operation, which means you raise um, more than 37,500 chickens, or, you raise, or you're or you a large operation raising 125,000 chickens or more, and you discharge to waterways, or you propose to discharge, you need a permit. So what does propose to discharge mean? So a lot of these operations are designed to um, channel water through man made conveyances, swales or ditches or pipes um, away from the production area where the buildings are, where the manure storage areas are. And so, because of the way these operations are designed, MD has determined that, that they have a discharge and they need permits. So, I'm going to talk about that category CAFO permits, concentrated animal feeding operations. There are other state permits that aren't as robust for smaller size operations, but in Waccamaco County, you have, there's a, a way you can look up the where the AFOs are in your county, how many there are, what, status, what the status is of their permitting. And you have a, on the MD website, the latest number is 199 operations. The vast majority of those are these large KFOs that have permits. Um, so we hear from MDE all the time that we don't have to worry because these permits are no discharge permits. Everything's under cover. You're good. Everyone's protected. Our water's protected. But that's just a myth. And that's one of the things I sort of want to clarify is that these actually aren't no discharge permits, and so I'm going to read from the permit itself because it's a no discharge permit on its face. This is in the first paragraph, and it says, the department, which is the Maryland Department of Environment, hereby authorizes animal feeding operations registered under this general permit to discharge animal waste, including manure, poultry litter, and processed wastewater, which is when litter um, comes into contact with water, to waters of the state in accordance with the following conditions. So it's authorizing discharges of animal manure, poultry litter, processed wastewater, two waters of the state, which includes surface water and groundwaters. This is a discharge permit. You're allowed to discharge under certain circumstances. And, yes, there are also practices that are required to minimize those discharge permits, but this is by no means a zero discharge permit. So... Um, Where do discharges come from generally from these operations that have these kinds of permits? So I'm going to break up the operations. So there's a production area, which is where the buildings are, where manure storage areas are, and then there's land application areas. So for CAFOs that have land under their control where they're spreading manure litter onto the field's um, fertilizer, there's also the part of the permit that deals with that. Um, most of the requirements the guts of the permit is a what's called a comprehensive nutrient management plan which is supposed to Address how you're managing your manure How are you land applying it so that it's you know at rates no more than what crops need how are you dealing with animal mortalities? How are you making sure um, That your production area doesn't have runoff of pollution those kinds of things, so let's start with the production area so Older KFOs can discharge, are authorized explicitly to discharge under this permit during a 25-year, 24-hour storm event. So that's on the eastern shore, about a 6-inch storm in 24 hours. So it's it's a fairly large storm, but as our storm events become more intense over time, you're going to have more and more of these events. And these, these are authorized discharges under the permit. You've got about 99 operations under these older permits. For newer, large operations, they are not allowed to discharge even in... Uh, regardless of the intensity of the storm. But you have a good number of CAFOs in your um, county that are authorized to discharge under certain storm events. Air emissions, this is a huge source of pollution. As Jillian mentioned, they are not covered by this permit. We believe at Food and Water Watch that there's um, legal reasons for why air emissions should be covered under Clean Water Act permits because a lot of these pollutants, particulate matter, ammonia, deposit directly onto waterways or they fall to the ground and then run off in a rain event off of the production area. Um, there is a recent study just last week from the National Academy of Sciences that looked nationwide and said that ammonia was the primary source of nitrogen falling to the ground and falling into our waterways Um, this source of pollution is not being controlled at CAFOs in Maryland and I've heard you know MD recently say at your meeting that uh, Mr. Culver sponsored that um, you know they don't consider the air emissions as part of the permitting process but there are also no regulations under the health codes or the environmental codes in the state to to address these sources of pollution. So these are emissions are um, uh, public health threats, but also threats to the environment as well that aren't covered by the permit. So what about the land application areas? So there's also a storm exemption under land application for land application areas. So if you're in compliance with your nutrient management plan and you still have runoff during a storm event, those are not covered by the clean water um, permit or exempted rather. Uh, the Environmental Integrity Project, and there's some reports out on the table, looked recently at 498 broiler operations on Del Marva in eight counties, including Wicomico County, and they found that based on reporting that the CAFOs um, did to the state, that 79% of the phosphorus was spread on soils that already was saturated. The soils were already saturated beyond what the crops could use. So the idea is you're going to use the manure as fertilizer and you're only going to apply what the crops can uptake for growth and None of it's going to run off into waterways, but in fact, we know that there's a lot of over-application. And some of this is not the farmer's fault um, from a legacy standpoint. The state recently updated their phosphorus management tool, which helps farmers to decide how much fertilizer they can use. But that was outdated, not protective. There's a new tool being phased in. With the um, intense growth, I wonder whether the growth will outpace benefits of this new tool, but that remains to be seen. Um, there's also a lot of no land operations, including in Waccamacle County, where they're building these huge complexes. They don't pretend to have real connection to the land, right? They're shipping and transporting the waste off site. Under the Clean Water Act permits, you, you um, report how much you're transporting off site, but it's kind of there's no real manifest system. So, what um, EIP's report showed is a lot of it ends up on the Eastern Shore farmland, uh, including um, often within the same county, but crop farmers that import litter do not have to report field level information about the nutrients they apply to crops. So we really don't know what the fate ultimately is of those uh, of that manure and whether it's being over-applied. And as Jillian mentioned, in the health context, the same as in the environmental contracts, ultimately there's no real monitoring under these permits to ensure compliance. So they have to, farmers have to test once a year their um, manure litter for nutrient contents. They have to test soil samples at least once every three years. That's it. There's no in-stream monitoring required. There's no monitoring that ensures compliance with clean, the Clean Water Act and to ensure that we're meeting our water quality goals and that there aren't there isn't pollution running off of these operations. Um, the, the permits also don't address cumulative impacts, which are um, significant given, again, the expansion of the industry on the eastern shore. So there was there's recent data from Delmarva Poultry Institute, which is the primary trade group for the industry, showing that um, bird count is up three percent from 2014 to 2015 to 580 million head on Delmarva, which is like the, I think it's the largest jump in the past six years. The number of pounds in production is up to three is up to 3.96 billion pounds a year, um, an increase of almost six percent. The number of houses rose, um, and so we're seeing more buildings, more chickens, more houses. These CAFO permits. MD will tell you they look at the individual permit their goal is to make sure that it's not polluting our waterways but they're not really addressing whether this one facility is next to another facility house a building you know Gary Kelman from MD recently said you know that's zoning that's a zoning issue a county issue that's not something I worry about right so they are doing nothing to address the cumulative impacts of these facilities Where is which is why you have areas of the eastern shore where have you know these poultry complexes stacked you know side by side by side um, and then finally, I looked at some comments that were recently submitted by the Environmental Action Center and some ex- where there are ex EPA lawyers um, submitting these comments, and to see well, what about Waikamako County permits? Are they, you know, do they reflect the concerns that I've, you know, mentioned? And you know, they uh, noted incomplete and outdated information on the permit application you know including not covering the expansion of the facility if it was an existing facility no analysis on impacts of waterways no assessment of cumulative impacts no um, requirement to control air emissions, as I said as I mentioned inadequate size of manure storage areas to handle and properly house manure you know the list goes on and on and on and these are um, permits that were recently approved um, And and finally, I I just want to mention, too, the state's not doing anything to make the big poultry companies responsible. So these permits go to the contract growers who are squeezed financially and um, have to put in practices and, as I said, should be doing more to control air emissions from the houses and that kind of thing. Um, The state has the authority to co-permit the big companies. They have refused to do so, Um, and that's another issue that I, I think is worth exploring in terms of whether, if these companies are doing business in your community, you can um, make them responsible for some of this waste management and, and make them pay some of their millions and billions of dollars in profits towards properly managing the manure so that your health is protected and your environment is protected since they own the chickens and they reap the profits. Um, so, I, you know, the question for you, I think, is, you know, I, these are not zero-discharge permits. They are not covering emissions like the air emissions from the buildings that are significant. And... Um, And if you don't feel that it's protected enough, the good news is that you do have the ability to do something about it. So your local government, your county council, and your county executive sit as the local board of health in your community, and they have the ability to pass health-based ordinances like Maria was talking about that can fill the gaps where the state is failing to protect you. They can address density and have setbacks, not just from waterways and those kinds of things, but between houses, right? They can address air emissions and require them, the vented air emissions, to be controlled and technology to put on, be put on the buildings to control those air emissions. They can issue health permits that allow them to do some inspections, and um, they can issue fees to cover the costs of those things. So there's a lot that your local government can do, um, and, you know, I would submit should do because I don't think the state's doing a good enough job of protecting you right now. So, But you do have the opportunity to self-determine, and I think that's... Um, something that folks are interested in and talking more about and we're willing to to help with. But, yeah. I was just going to say, I'll just hold this for, maybe we can get into this, Mark, but, you know, ultimately this is a cultural question, right? Like, what do you want your community to look like? I don't think anyone thinks we should be running agriculture out of town, right? But the eastern shore of Maryland used to have very robust truck crops, like fruits, vegetables. A lot of those crops have been replaced by soy, soy and corn, for poultry operations, you've got all your eggs in one basket, pardon the phrase, right now. Um, And we have a report out there called Economic Cost of Food Monopolies that looked at data from the 40s to 2012, which is the last data set that we had that showed if agriculture was as diverse as it used to be, farmers would have made $137 more million right? And we started talking about, like, you know, the number of acres that would have to be converted the (coughs) corn and soy back to fruits and vegetables. But my question is for communities, you know, when you're talking about economic development, should we be thinking about diversifying agriculture, right, so that farmers can make a living wage, so that you're operating in a way that's protective of public health and the environment? I think those are important questions to ask. And, and like I said, you have government officials um, that have the authority to make decisions um, that can help you achieve those types of goals. Thank you.
0: That was Michelle Merkel, co-director of Food and Water Justice for Food and Water Watch. We're here in a town hall I moderated in Salisbury where we looked at the expansion of industrial-scale poultry operations, known as confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, and discussed the impact on community health and safety if this expansion is allowed to continue. We have to take a very short break here, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear the second part of that conversation. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And you're listening to Soundbites, our series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future. Right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. This morning we are hearing a town hall meeting I moderated in Salisbury where we looked at the expansion of industrial-scale poultry that are called Confined Animal Feeding Operations, or CAFOs. We discussed the impact on community health and safety that expansion of these gigantic poultry houses is already having and could have if the operations were allowed to expand. Before we went to break, we heard about some of the science around poultry production and its impact on the environment and human health and discussed some of the policy issues around that. Now we'll hear the rest of the opening statements from the panel We start with Maria Payan, consultant for the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project.
3: My name is Maria Payan, and I am uh, a consultant with a national nonprofit, which is Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. Uh, What we do is we work with communities who reach out for help um, when it comes to any type of industrialized uh, animal production facilities. Um, I work in multiple states, um, mostly on the northeast and the eastern shore here. Uh, I can tell you that um, I myself actually became involved in this issue um, because I had bought a house back in 1999 uh, in Delta, Pennsylvania, uh, across from a farm which I grew up in Bucks County, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a farming community. Um, I am no stranger to farms, and this is where I wanted to raise my child, and we had a business there as well. I was a stone's throw across the street from um, cattle on pasture, and we had horses in the back pasture, and things were lovely until um, the farmer sold the land. And the farmer had sold the land to an absentee owner um, who had come in and started constructing chicken house after chicken house after chicken house. And when I'm saying chicken houses, these are 600-foot buildings. Um, They are uh, 25,000 birds per piece uh, in each building confined. So it was 100,000 birds. um, And... One of the biggest effects and impacts That you have with these kind of operations Is the dust Um, Literally it was A street that separated My house from their house Um, Some of the things that I experienced and my family Experienced as we lived there And this came into production um, Was My son would get off the bus And he would throw up From the smell he would vomit Um, that's completely unacceptable this is your body's way of getting rid of a toxin Um, the state regulates certain things um, when it comes to these confinement facilities certain things are not regulated and are a direct public health risk Um, there has been a lot of science that has been documented more and more each year Um, whether it is Pennsylvania New York, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Maryland, Delaware. Ammonia is ammonia. Hydrogen sulfide is hydrogen sulfide. Pathogens are pathogens. MRSA is MRSA. There are problems. Um, When we would have company over, my son would bring his friends over from school. I would have to call them in when The air got too bad and it stunk too bad because they were inhaling things that were not good for them and the air quality was not good enough for them to play outside. Um, I will say that one of my son's best friends was the largest farmer in your county and he was not allowed to come over to our house because it was contaminated over there. So when you have school children and you think of this and this is your family and your children, this is not what most people consider a home atmosphere to be. One of the problems um, that has occurred is farming has changed dramatically over the years and what started out to be smaller number of animals has now grown into larger number of animals, confinements, and now we're seeing um, a very aggressive different type of um, projects down here. A lot of developers um, that are putting in a huge number of houses. And these houses um, are on a small parcel of land. So it does not have a lot of buffers around it. What I have helped communities do is to address the problems with public health and communities have joined together, much like what we see down here if you look at the full room, um, this is a community that's standing shoulder to shoulder, and I'll tell you, it is a subject where you have to find a balance, and that is a difficult thing to do um, when you're talking about this, these very large factor, you know, industrialized animal production facilities. So um, in Cadoris Township in Pennsylvania, uh, we were able to, in August, pass a health ordinance, and what the health ordinance does is address things that the state does not already address in permitting. For example, okay, the state does not address how far one facility is sited from another facility. And the reason for that is biosecurity. Um, You know, I have numerous studies up here where the industry would never have gone down this road years ago. They would set up a facility and not set another one, you know, so close to where they put a large facility. It would be a mile or two miles away. Now we're seeing facility next to facility next to facility. Matter of fact, I found one, they had five different integrators within a half mile. Um, When things happen, uh, like avian influenza or some type of uh, problem like that, that is the pathogens or the virus is spread airborne, you have problems now. Now you have where this is blowing, and we saw it you know, in the past year, where they had to call 47 million birds. Um, what comes out of the fan affects what you breathe into your lungs. The ones that are most impacted are children and the elderly, um, asthma, COPD. Um, we were successfully able to do this Because we brought the science and addressed that there was nothing in place to create a balance. And what I love about the health ordinance is everyone, you know, it's a touchy subject and people say you're trying to shut down industry. No, this doesn't do that at all. It doesn't tell them you can't build here. What it does is say, if you're going to build here, you have to take certain things in precaution. And we keep hearing how They want to be a good neighbor. Well, if industry wants to be a good neighbor, then you have to recognize that there are things that you can do to be a better neighbor, and these things should be done for the simple reason that no one should have to give up their health because industry wants to move in next door to them and does not want to do extra precautions. So this is the the success of health ordinances, Anyone who already has a farm is grandfathered in, so they do not have to do anything extra. Uh, The community that we did pass this in, there are 4,000 people in that community. The operation that they wanted to expand would have expanded this facility to 3 million birds. So this is not in any way what we want to call a family farm. This is major industry, and there are health effects. So the, the community stood together shoulder to shoulder. Farmers um, were part of the conversation as well because they were being impacted. It wasn't an us against them. It's, okay, we have a problem here. Let's sit down. Let's come together as a community. Let's put some common sense um, things in place that are going to... Create that balance. And, you know, often you see hesitation at the leadership level. And I will say that the township that passed this, as well as a county that passed it in another state that I talked to, they both told me in the beginning they were apprehensive. But this is the best thing they could have done because it created that balance without the conflict. So it's not a you can't come. It's you can come, but you know UV lighting that kills pathogens. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about separation distances. Let's talk about a health permit so that if something goes wrong, um, there is a means to go in and inspect and enforce.
0: Uh, I'd like to turn now to Craig Watts, um, who came up from North Carolina, um, and I don't know how many of you know who he is or his story. But I only learned of it recently. <clears throat> and it really is really interesting just to hear his thoughts about his poultry operation, why he took a stand he did. It was very popular on some levels and very unpopular on other levels, um, and what he learned from that process and what happened. So i am just let Craig tell his story, and we can excuse me, and we can take it from there. Craig?
4: Well, I initially started being an advocate for, um, for uh, farmers because the contracts really got – or for lack of better terms, honors. Um, it's just so one-sided. Uh, I, I, won't, I wouldn't even go as far as calling it a contract. It's more of a, uh, or a contract of adhesion, if you want to uh, put it in the contract terms. But a contract would indicate mutual obligation, and uh, I just didn't. I just don't see that in these contracts anymore. But um, through advocating for uh, farmer con, uh, contracts, I did a little media, a little print stuff, and I ran ran into a, a reporter. And he and I worked together, and so he had a girl down in uh, Georgia, she was from Atlanta, who was a, uh, he said, a chicken expert, like behavioral stuff and chickens. And said, he said, would you talk to her? I said, yeah. And so her name was Leah Garces, and she works with Compassion and War Farming. I'd never heard of them. Uh And she, um, so she calls me one day, and we kind of go back and forth, back and forth, and she finally gets the courage to ask me, could I bring my camera person? I'm like, Sure. You know, that should be no problem to open a door of a poultry house. I mean, if, you, if you're closing the doors and keeping everybody out, then you got to be ashamed of what you're doing. Well, I wasn't. Come on, you film it, make up your mind. And I know what I see every day. Um, and so what happened was she came in early one flock, early one flock, yeah, and uh, we filmed the, the little chicks. And if you any poultry farmer in this room, you know you get some cross beaks, no eyes, you get. Uh, uh, dehydrated ones bacteria laden ones and it can be a myriad of things and so we kind of went through that process and so she came back a little later in the flock and actually i think it was like the day they, they moved out and and you see some other issues you see leg problems and then you see you know, how jam-packed they are in there and if it was that was either i think it was july and so it was really hot so birds were panning and and so that was in may of 2014 and so we kind of held back on it and um I think she released it December 3rd of 2014. And by December 4th, 2014, I think we had a half a million views on YouTube. Uh, It's well over 2 million today. Uh, To say it changed my world would be the understatement of a lifetime. She, um, naturally, the next day, the, the (coughs) the, 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 the video was released on a Wednesday night, Thursday morning it really hit full time and then um and then naturally the integrator was down there and they were coming to to check me out. Though the same two men had been down there five hundred times before and never found an issue, but they were doing what they were told to do, no problem. And uh, I thought they were going to take the birds and fire me. I mean, but I had already prepared myself for that because what happened was I was seeing not only issues with the lack of respect for the farmers' role in this business. And I'll just say this right now: without those farmers building those houses, none of the rest of it matters. It doesn't matter if that farmer doesn't build that house. There's no need for that service tech, that live production manager, uh, right on up the line. And it just seems like we are, you know, the, the redheaded stepchild. But anyway, um, so after after Purdue um, came out and they inspected me, and, and they, then they left, and they left the flock in the house. And so I moved that flock out, and I don't know, about two or three weeks passed, they came out and they gave me this, a letter. It's called a Performance Improvement Plan for Biosecurity and Welfare. I'm the only chicken farmer in the United States of America, or maybe the history of the world, that's ever been put on that. But anyway, so I, but I didn't feel special, I can assure you. Uh, and I don't know what it was, if it was intimidation or whatever, but they had to realize by that time, I didn't care if they pulled a contract or not. Uh, because what I was seeing was deception in the marketing. And I think that got to actually bother me more than uh, than what the farmers are going through, at least there briefly. Um, you know, when you put, uh, when you put something on the labels and people expect that if they see this on this label and they don't see it on this label, that they're getting a better product. And we were seeing terms like cage-free, which is absurd. Every broiler... Uh, in America for meat is raised without a cage and the reason they raised without a cage they got them in there this tight you couldn't get a cage in there so um, the other thing was humanely raised says who but uh, the USDA actually made them pull that off the label Um, uh, there were actually two lawsuits about that Uh, uh, HSUS and uh, I can't remember the lady in in New Jersey I think Um, no hormones or steroids well that's been outlawed since the 70's doesn't happen so, it's like what they're putting on the label is saying, you know, the sky's blue. Okay. And that's, that's that's about what it means. So, that that was kind of bothering me a bit. And I saw an advertisement where, you know, the, the chairman of the company was going into a poultry house and, and the birds are about market age. And he says, nice, fresh pine shavings on the floor. The pellets, per, uh, teeth, perfect pellets. Equipment is spotless. And I'm thinking, that's six week old birds. It doesn't look like that. And, uh, And so I thought that that was just being very insulting to the public. And at the end of the day, that's who I work for. I work for the consumer. I don't work for that integrator. I work for the consumer. And if I sat on it, I was enabling, and I would be worse than the perpetrator. So that's the story.
0: And, and, and now I want to introduce Fred Tupman, who's a farmer and environmentalist, waterkeeper, to give the kind of local perspective on what he's seen.
5: So next month uh, will be my 13th year as a riverkeeper, which makes me the second longest-serving riverkeeper in the Chesapeake Bay Area, and at the moment the only African-American riverkeeper in the nation. And I was thinking on the way down here that one of the things I'm really grateful to do, because I am excited to go to work every single day, but I'm excited because I get to help people. You know people think about environmentalists as folks who love bunnies and um, birds and trees (laughs) and I love those things too but I must say that when you improve people's environment protecting their water and their air and protecting land that actually has the potential of altering and improving people's lives and that is hugely important work in my view and work I'm really excited to do I get up every morning and I'm excited to go to work 13 years later after I started this work I'm still excited to go to work every single day I represent farmers on the Patuxent River Commission, in addition to being a riverkeeper, and I spend about 30% of my time in North Carolina, where my other half lives. She's a riverkeeper in Pittsboro, North Carolina, where I'm very active in the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, where, of course, we have issues with factory farms, huge issues, huge issues, and David and Goliath-style battles with communities over their health and their welfare. And problems with their water and their air and their ability to function in their homes, in their communities. And for the most part, even in my own watershed, these types of battles are generally fought in communities that don't have nearly as much political clout and the power to fight back. I mean, that is a national trend, and that's that's nobody's secret. I mean, if you've heard a lot about Flint, Michigan, believe me, there are a whole lot of Flints out there, and some of them are in Maryland. You know, that's the tip of the iceberg. So while I live on an ancestral farm that my great grandfather left as he built it in 1921 and you know we don't have chickens on it we grow hardship like most american farms and, and i have some appreciation for the difficulty of making a living off of the land or for that matter, the watermen who have a difficulty these days living off of the waterways, right? People who work with their hands, right, and wrest a living from nature have a very tough road home. And I, and I get that. And I believe that the work that we do as river keepers fights on their behalf to protect their livelihoods, but also to protect their families and their safety and their health. So a health ordinance is a very prudent step to protect public health and safety and I would look twice at any industry that argues about even having the dialogue, right? A town meeting on any topic is evidence of democracy at work, right? And people who <laughs> and people who are angry about us even having this conversation, right? Raises my concern right off the bat, right? Because what would possibly be the harm, right, of having an ordinance? If these are industries that are benign to your health and safety, what's the harm in regulating them to make sure of it? Where would the harm be? I mean, right? The benefit clearly outweighs any potential harm. And uh, Any of the lawyers in the room will, will tell you about those, you know, gravity burden type tests where you weigh right public policy. Right against the other end of, of, of the spectrum. So this teeter-totter between the have and the have-nots, those with power and those who do not, is a huge thing. It's, a, it's not a small thing by any stretch of the imagination. I'm deeply concerned right, that these communities that are facing um agribusiness, right, industrial farms, different type of agriculture than the type that we do where I live and work in Annapolis, where there's the potential to disrupt lives and to compromise people's health. And an opportunity here to do the right thing, both for the regional economy, because uh, it's no big secret, the relationship between having a clean and wholesome and healthy environment and having a robust local economy should be no contest. Right, These two things are closely fused; they're closely connected. You really can't have one without the other, and again, look twice at anybody that thinks you have to choose between one or the other right. So I think I'll probably stop there. I'm obviously not a local guy, but again, I care deeply about the empowerment of this community and its ability to speak stridently about protecting its own stakeholder interest in having clean air and water. Um, and a community that thrives on every level, economically, uh, from a public health health standpoint, and on every other level you can possibly imagine. So uh, I'll leave it there for now.
0: That was Frederick Tutman, Patuxent Riverkeeper and Farming Representative for the Patuxent River Commission. You also heard Michelle Merkel, Co-Director for Food and Water Justice, a project of Food and Water Watch. Maria Payan, Consultant for the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. Craig Watts, a former contract poultry grower from North Carolina, and Dr. Julian Fry, a project director at the Center for a Livable Future. Please tune in next week to hear the rest of this panel, where we discuss solutions and hear from community members and Wicomico County leaders. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer Del Marvel. Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Theme music is by Warren Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community and WSTL 90.7 FM Don Marvel Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.